investor doing things on your own? How about someone working with a firm that isn't so responsive or in sync with your investment philosophy? My podcast talks you through all things financial. Look, there's stuff you don't deal with very often, but investments, insurance, and retirement is something we plan for each and every day. This is the Pennywise Financial Podcast, and welcome to the show. Pennywise Financial Podcast. This is Constantine here, Monarch Wealth Management, and I have a special guest today. My guest today is Mark Zimba. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Cons. Thanks for having me. And for those who don't know, Mark is an independent advisor uh, out in Buffalo, New York. And him and I work together um, as a team on retirement plans. So business owners, participants, their employees or staff, we work together to create a craft, a plan that's going to be really beneficial for not only the business owner, but their employees, the participants, and really try to engage with them uh, on the education and, and making the right choices, but also making sure that we have the best investments for them. So I want to talk first about your role, Mark, and how you're, you're different than most advisors and what you do on these retirement plans. Sure, Gons. So my my role as it pertains to our joint plans is the investment fiduciary. And the investment fiduciary is um, <clears throat> responsible for implementing processes and procedures that are specifically for the benefit of the participant. And in this case, that's the employee that is captive. And a fiduciary, by definition, needs to act solely in their best interest. And my responsibility through my processes is to constantly review and modify the investment lineup or the options that participants have to select from to ensure that if it's not the best, it's at least close to the best and uh, that we have proper documentation so that participants that are in the plans can make uh, guided and proper decisions. And in addition to that, I work with the plan sponsors to ensure that the plan design, which is the list of options available to uh, govern the you know, week-to-week operation of the plan are the most efficient for the needs of that employer. And so when we talk about plan design, uh, essentially there are some what we might call, uh, for lack of a better term, bells and whistles that you can add or modify or change to the plan to make sure that it really offers everything that uh, would really help not only the company, the business owner, but those participants in making sure. And and there's a ton of different mechanisms that you implement sometimes depending on how specific the need is. Um, So I think that's pretty important, right? I mean, how many how many 401k plans do you look at that were maybe just set up as is kind of like that was the next step? They set up payroll, they offered some benefits, and they say, "Hey, let's throw a 401k." No thought gone into it. Um, maybe the investment menu hasn't been reviewed in a year or two, and there's just you know it's kind of just there, right? How many how many times do we see that happen all the time? Yeah, yeah, the majority, and it's. And it, it, it's kind of like liking the idea that you buy a house and a house is a house is a house is a house. And we all know that every house is different. There are different bedrooms, there's different bathrooms, there's layouts, there's yards, no yard. And 401k is, um, you know, and we, we see this a lot when we meet with participants as well, that 
well, I've had a 401k and I didn't like it because, you know, insert answer here. And at the end of the day, they didn't like their 401k because it either one wasn't being properly managed or two, it wasn't set up to benefit the employees properly or three, it wasn't explained well. And that's the, that's the thing that I guess fuels me in this space is for every minute of time that we have to invest in our world, 401k is probably one of the most efficient because if we are fixated on improving the plans and lowering costs and educating the participants, we can affect in a very, very positive way a lot of people. So one company might have 50 employees. For us to do that individually, to work with 50 different households, it's a lot of time and it's not as efficient. We can fix a broken 401k and now 50 people benefit immediately. And that's that's why I love this space. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, you're and you're right. And we do that in a number of different ways. And and one of them is yes, getting the plan set up the way it should be, right? Making sure that all the bells and whistles, all the components are put together in a nice uniform fashion, neat, organized. But above and beyond that, it's the ongoing process, the the education, reaching out to those employees and those participants and making sure they understand their choices. How do they come to those choices on on how to allocate funds? Is it going more into stocks or more into bonds, more aggressive, more conservative? Which point in their life are they and what those goals are? But above and beyond that, your role is ongoing. It's it's not a, a static menu that we create and cross our fingers and hope that things go well. You're monitoring this. You're making changes. You're adapting the plan so that it keeps up with the times, correct? That's correct. Yeah, the, the laws change. And the in every company is different. Every plan is different. And, and it's critical. And I'm experiencing this right now with a plan that within a year and a half outgrew its design. It was a small company that became a larger company that became an even larger company. And, um, you know, and we have mutual plans that are identical, that they have outgrown their design and, and, you know, that that needs to change regularly. So the idea that the plan was set up eight years ago and, the dynamics of the company have changed and maybe they've changed healthcare providers and maybe they are, uh, you know, health insurance options. They've changed payroll. They've built a new building. They've hired 40 people, but the idea that the 401k hasn't changed doesn't make sense. And, and so constant review of all of this is required. We, we at least annually meet with every plan sponsor to ensure that it's still doing what it needs to do. And I have a couple plans that I meet with twice a year to ensure that it's still doing what it needs to do because there's such a flux for them and employees and cash flow and revenue that it, um, you know, it's no different than tracking the stock market. 401k design and implementation can change frequently and should if it's necessary. Absolutely. 
in the next part, I, I really want to touch on how plans fall apart, and, and we'll touch on that in just a minute. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the show. Do you want help building and managing an investment portfolio that's right for you? One that will help you maximize growth potential while you're saving, help you generate income when you need it most, and eventually preserve what you've saved to leave to your beneficiaries? We do this day in and day out, and take the stress and responsibility of making those decisions off your plate. Subscribe to our newsletter, read our blog post, and listen to our podcast to get a flavor of how we do things. Our firm is unique and capable of handling all your investment and insurance needs. Monarch Wealth Management, our guidance, your future. Welcome back to Pennywise Financial Podcast. This is Constantine here, Monarch Wealth Management. My guest today is Mark Zimba from Buffalo. Mark is uh, one of the uh, independent advisors here at Monarch Wealth Management. He's got a, a number of different kind of unique uh, aspects of him that he offers to his clients. We started talking about our mutual plans, uh, 401k retirement type plans. And, uh, you know, I read these articles all the time about plan failures. Can you talk about some of the things that you consider when you're choosing the, that investment menu for these participants and for the uh, sponsors? You know, is it, is it cost? Because I, I know that's not, that might be on the front of mind, right, for a lot of participants. What's the lowest cost? What can I get? What's, a, what's an index fund? But talk about what's really important when you're making those choices. Sure. The first and foremost is designing the plan lineup that meets the investment IQ of the population. And what I mean by that is the more comfortable participants are with investing and changing their investments, the more complicated you can go with the design. If the participants are really not uh, educated when it comes to investing and understanding market cycles and trends, then the goal of the plan design is to offer them a robust list of options, but also refrain from including anything that people could harm themselves themselves with. And I look at investment selection as it relates to fees in a net return figure. I think that fees are important. And as we've seen more and more prevalence of index funds and more reversion to the mean when it comes to uh, categories, that fees are important. But if there are managers uh, in a mutual fund format or an ETF format, that are providing excess return without excess risk, then we would be irresponsible not to include them, even if they're not the least expensive option. I mean, so that only makes sense. Really, the two, yeah, yeah, it's net return. I mean, it's, um, you might only pay 0.1% for fees, but if it's 2% behind the alternative on an annualized basis in return, sure, you save maybe a half percent in performance management fees, but your overall return is really what you should focus upon. And it's not just the return of the year, it's consistent, sustainable returns from a tenured management team that is also risk-minded. So there's there's a lot of factors. It's not just picking the lineup and, oh, this one did 20% last year, that's gonna be our large cap option. It's what is their process? Who are they? 
And in going forward, do I have the confidence confidence that they can continue to perform the way that they have previously? Or is there some fluke? Did they make a bet that buoyed their fund and, and, and but that bet, you know, Know, can't be counted upon. That's it, it's a really complicated equation that goes into finding and selecting the investments. But at the end of the day, it's it's net return and patient and client experience. You know, are they going to have to ride a bumpy roller coaster, or is it, you know, sort of a smooth wave? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it sounds uh, to me logical. It seems it seems somewhat basic. You know, you you want to make sure that you include the investments that will uh, allow those folks who have the knowledge, who have the capacity, or the appetite for risk um, to to really harness those those investments that might be unique. And for those folks who just don't have the 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 knowledge, the capability, the functionality, the comprehension to make the the right choices, and and could actually harm themselves, uh, that you don't include those. Those, those options in uh, that particular plan, um, so that the, that doesn't make sense. And I don't know if a lot of folks know that. You know, they don't they don't understand that. You know, they think maybe there's a uh, a list of mutual funds that you create a menu, and uh, it's kind of a blanket approach. Everyone gets the same thing, and it's not. It's a customized process. You know, and I th- I think that's important. Every plan's a little different. You know, depending on what the offering looks like, depending on how they want to come about uh, a match to their participants, whether they want to offer loans or not. So there's a lot of different unique parts to retirement plans that I don't think a lot of business owners know. And even the participants, you mentioned something about returns. I think you said something about uh, recent history or, or or maybe a one-off. This is a great year. They made good bets in, in a certain sector that paid off. How many times do you hear employees that, that go in and make their fund selection based off of last year's performance? <laughs> Chasing the, the returns. Least, the, the least happy. <laughs> the most frustrated, you know, are, are chasing returns. And, you know, as advisors, we have to have a contrarian approach as it relates to returns, because if you didn't own the category that's up 45% this year, why on earth would you own it now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so that's, um, that's basically how Mark and I work together. Uh, he's more on the uh, fund analytics uh, investment menu, fiduciary uh, plan design, and I provide the education. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's, let's talk about the other offerings because I know you do some things that, that I don't do personally, and I know a lot of advisors don't do them as well. What else do you offer your clients? So the, the retail side of my advisory practice is much closer to a traditional wealth management model where I develop individual relationships and uh, grow exclusively by referral. And that creates a, um, a client mix that I like. Um, I'm not uh, particularly interested in growing my client base dramatically. I think that the organic growth with people that have the same interests and values that I do has made this job a lot of fun Absolutely. <laughs> and really rewarding to be frank. Um, I, I, you know, it's being fully independent. It's nice being able to 
be interviewing as I'm being interviewed myself, because there are just some people that I'm not right for. And, you know, I, I'm excited to share that because it's better to get that out of the way early than two years down the road, find out, oh, well, we don't exactly feel the same way about, um, you know, investment theories or um, whatever our own personal beliefs or opinions are. Uh, I like that. Um, so I've got a, uh, boutique practice that has grown, um, at a healthy rate, but has grown organically and without a lot of artificial pressure. And, um, and I love, I love what I do. I love the clients that I work for. I, I like the, the pace that the whole thing moves and I would prefer to provide much better service and far fewer clients. That's just the, the who, 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 you know, what I've come your, to. Who is your ideal client? What, what is that? What does that look like? You mentioned someone with similar interests. Who, mm-hmm. who would that be? You know, if someone's listening to the show, who, who might those folks be? My, my ideal client is somebody that takes this as seriously as I do. My, the clients that I really thrive with are the ones that are active. They're engaged they're as concerned as I am. If, if a client comes with a certain level of arrogance or disinterest, that's not a good fit for me because I don't need any more clients. <laughs> I want people that want to improve their financial picture. They want to be engaged. They want to be part of the process. And I don't expect my clients to you know, want to know every investment decision that I make. That's why I've been hired. But I want somebody that that cares. Um, I do not want a client with $10 million that wants $12 million and wants to talk to me every two years. That That's just not a client that's a good fit for me. I want to, uh, my ideal client is somebody that has worked hard to earn what they have. They understand the sacrifice that was required to build this wealth. And they want someone that takes it just as seriously as they do. That's my ideal client. I don't have a, you know, an income level or an asset level that's ideal because I, in my previous practice, worked with plenty of clients that had buckets and buckets of money, but just were disinterested and disengaged. And there's nothing less rewarding to me than just being another person in their mix of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. With that, I want to shift gears in the next segment. We're going to talk a little bit more about Mark, the personal Mark, um, and, and some of your life journeys uh, that you, you've agreed to share. Uh, and they do, they do have a tie into the, the, the financial side as well. But uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with the show. Do you have a high deductible insurance plan? If so, have you set up your HSA? There's a ton of people who don't know what it is or how it works. Even worse, there aren't many people who can give you advice about how to make the most of these powerful and unique programs. Not many advisors focus on this in their practice, don't understand the mechanics of how they work or even where to begin helping their clients. Reach out to me, Constantine at Monarch Wealth Management, and I'll guide you through this process and get you on track to make the most of your high deductible plan and your superhuman HSA. Welcome back to Pennywise Financial Podcast. This is Constantine here, Monarch Wealth Management, and I have a special guest today, Mark Zimba. Welcome back to the show. 
So Mark, in this segment, I wanted to get a little personal. You agreed again to share some some uh, things that you're going through right now on personal uh, on the personal side. So go ahead. Let's let's share your story. Let's hear more about it. Sure. Well, I am super gay <laughs> and my husband and I are working on <laughs> my husband and I are working on uh, our first kid and we've we're actually a little bit over halfway through the process our first wow. son AJ is set to be born on November 12th and we're super excited wow that is huge huge news huge like massive yeah so massive um, years in the making so 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 elaborate on that process. Like what, what was the process like? I mean, what, I can't even imagine you, you said years. <laughs> years. Yeah. Well, I, yeah I can kind for, of imagine um, because we, my wife and I have, have yeah. been through some, some things and it's been a journey for us and, and it has been years for us. And, mm-hmm. and we have a, uh, a beautiful, healthy boy, Sebastian. He is just turned four uh, a couple weeks ago. It's crazy how time flies, but it was a journey for us as well. Um, a financial journey, a uh, an emotional journey, it certainly was. But go ahead and, and this is this is about you. Let's let's hear more about your your story. Sure, no, sure. I appreciate the opportunity to chat on it. My so our process started uh, back in 2017. So we're actually coming up on four years uh, this fall. Um, you know, AJ is going to be born within a week of four years of this process starting. We knew early on when we were we started dating and got married that kids were really critical to us and for a lot of reasons, legacy, but also just purpose. It's uh, I don't know that there's any greater honor or joy than being able to raise uh, a kid in this world. Um, but we went through foster to adopt classes and then we looked at private adoption. And after we realized what was right for our family, we landed on surrogacy and um, interviewed agencies, interviewed IVF clinics. And um, the process was what we needed when we needed it. And let me ask you this. I'm excited. How, how, how does that work in New York State? So we're in New York. So is it, I didn't know if yeah, it, um, I, I think laws have changed quite a bit since I looked into this years ago. Sure. Yeah. So we, um, so New York state has changed actually just recently to allow for legally compensated surrogates prior to, prior to um, this year, New York would uh, completely outlawed compensating a surrogate in any way for her care and required compassionate carry only. And compassionate carry is just as it sounds, you're doing it solely out of the goodness of your heart without any type of compensation or reimbursement whatsoever. And for us, we lacked the um, desire and I think structure to do something like that and ask that of someone. So we have done it's our, a big ask. or have completed our entire journey. Yeah, it's a big ask. And it's messy. A lot of times people have family members or friends. We actually have a friend, a couple friends, a gay couple that's also going through surrogacy themselves. And the one of the partners has an employee <laughs> carrying his child 
which really it's just a whole nother layer of issues in my opinion. But we wanted to do this in a legal and clean format and completed our IVF process and our egg donation. In, in Canada at a clinic in Toronto. And our surrogate is actually based out of uh, Georgetown, South Carolina. Just so to, just to mix things up and, and confuse it, how, how did this, how did this happen? Was this pre-COVID? Did you start a pre-COVID? How does that work now with Canada, U.S.? Oh, oh, it adds, it adds a year. Um, <laughs> but like I said before, everything that's supposed to happens happens when it's supposed to happen. And I wouldn't change in retrospect, any part of the process. I mean, I would change parts, but on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, the timing is great. The, um, the net result is great, but we originally anticipated the entire process occurring in Canada. So the idea of an American born surrogate was not, in the mix initially, and part of it's financial. The Canadian system, healthcare system, provides additional support and benefits for surrogates and the intended parents. But secondly, we wanted the the legal component to be clean and to be homogenous. Well, you don't get to choose everything in life. And <laughs> no, so we for don't. For us, we ended up not finding a surrogate. No, we don't choose anything. Actually, we make choices, but what happens is um, is up to fate. And in this case, we didn't find a surrogate in Canada that we connected with, and we ended up finding one in South Carolina. And we were scheduled last March to transfer our embryos, and lo and behold, COVID. Uh, change that. Wow. So our surrogate was screened and did her medical in February. We were set to transfer at the end of March and well, Canada closed the border and surrogacy in their eyes. And I think in most people's eyes is voluntary. It's not a, it's an elective procedure. It's not something that is uh, life threatening. So it didn't meet any of the exclusions required to allow for cross-border travel. Jeez. So here we are. March of last year, and we can't transfer. So what do you got to do? You hire a clinic down in South Carolina, and you basically UPS your unborn children in a tube, um, a cryo tube, and pray that it gets there. And it actually got there the last possible day. Uh, so embryos are viable for so long in these little you know, shipping tubes and, um, ours got lost <laughs> and, oh, and, uh, what you know, it didn't show up and they're like, well, we think it's there. Um, we can't find it. And yeah, they literally lost, um, our embryos, but they found them. They showed up and, um, first transfer wasn't successful, but the second one was, and, um, little AJ is moving right along, kicking like a soccer player in the 98th percentile for size. He's going to be a big baby, at so, least if it continues. Every measurement so far, he's been a big, fat baby. So you're still on track. You said November this year, right? So I, yeah, I got a, here's a question year. for you. Now, on the financial side, obviously, we're running a financial show. We want to kind of tie in. Who pays for what? Because I know a lot has changed. Like when I, so we used to work uh, before we went independent, opened the firm, 
this is 2014. Prior to that, we had um, health insurance and they didn't cover anything. You know, I had a full blown policy. It was not a high deductible plan. This is back in the day. I mean, these are far and few between, but uh, it didn't cover much, especially like you said, this was considered elective. This was not uh, something that was, uh, you know, a life-saving measure. It was not something that was deemed necessary and vital. Um, so everything was pretty much paid for out of pocket. Um, and we had to get creative in ways that we could fund our own procedures. But I'm curious, how have things changed? So if it's not employer-sponsored, it is still, at least in most states, completely self-funded. So in our case, we have paid private rates for everything, for every medical, every physical, every um, every part of the IVF process. The laws are changing and they're, um, they're permitting more and more coverage for uh, reproductive assistance. In this case, obviously Nick and I cannot naturally conceive a child. So, it's technically a disposition that, you know, depending on people's philosophical or personal beliefs, you know, would say that it's by design and um, those laws are changing. So they're starting to produce or provide coverage for um, infertility due to gender. But in this case, we knew going into it that we were responsible for all of it. So we have paid for every step of this process and it's, you know, we're, we're at about 110,000 so far in the last year and a half. And, um, you know, the, when I said that I wouldn't change anything about what has happened, uh, it has been serendipitous that financially we have been able to pay out of pocket as we go for, these procedures. And if it weren't for the time and it weren't, weren't for us being serious about budgeting, we wouldn't have gotten there. You know, we're going to, we're going to leave this process with no debt related to the surrogacy process and, um, and start the normal uh, burden financially of being a new parent. But overall um, it's been rewarding. I don't feel like we've sacrificed anything. We travel extensively as you know counts oh yeah oh <laughs> and, yeah and we don't miss meals so it's not a matter of um i think because we've done everything right on the on the on the planning side and on the case side the fact that we've made the right decisions for our clients and they have shared that with other people and our businesses have grown as a result that has allowed us to uh, allow Nick and I to build our family um, just through budgeting and um, doing the right things at work. I mean, it's it's been good. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I mean, I'd say from what I'm hearing with other families that are going through different things, uh, depending on the level of support they're getting, between a hundred to two hundred thousand is pretty much the the norm out of pocket, above and beyond your normal uh, monthly healthcare premiums and normal doctor's visits. But I'm curious, so who who pays for what? Is is your is your health plan covering um, the surrogate? How how does that work? Do they have to have their own? Do you no. pay for certain expenses out of, out of your own pocket? Yeah. So the um, so the, there's a point at which so IVF is the process by which 
conception occurs outside of the normal natural mechanisms. And IVF includes collecting sperm and egg donation and fertilization of eggs in a, um, in a, in a, in a sterile environment and freezing them. And also the transfer of those embryos. So IVF is everything up until the point that they hear a heartbeat. Once they hear a heartbeat and conception has occurred, now it is a pregnant person. So our surrogate at that point is pregnant with a child and is covered by the insurance that they possess. In this case, uh, or in actually most cases, the intended parents pay the premiums for that person's health insurance and everything to do with IVF is completely compensated by the intended parents. So at this point, when our surrogate goes for an OBGYN appointment, it's billed to her health insurance, but we're paying the health insurance premiums. I see. I see. And then how about after the fact? So let's say there's complications or let's say afterwards uh, there's there's some type of uh, ailment that that this uh, uh, not the donor, but the uh, carrier um, develops mm-hmm. as a result. Who Who's responsible legally? Who's responsible? So if it's a medical event as a from a, resulting directly from the surrogacy, the health insurance covers that. So that's a, um, that's a health insurance type event. There are assumed risks in anything. I don't care if you of course. Um, are a truck driver or a surrogate or a rocket, you know, a test pilot or an airline pilot. You know, it's it's to some extent there's a vocational component to this that everyone going into this process understands there is risk. And in the case of a surrogate, um, they're volunteering uh, potentially their health if things go wrong, you know, in return for, uh, you know, what we all agree to. And so it's, um, and it's, I guess a little cavalier maybe for me to phrase it that way, but I can't think of a more pragmatic way to explain the relationship between the surrogate and the intended parents. This person, for us, uh, her name is Amber, is providing us with something that I don't think you could put a, a monetary value on. No. Actually, I know you can't. No way. Um, but there is a monetary component that says, okay, we can't do this. Um, you know, in theory, there's there's no amount of money I would, I would, there's no budget for conception of children for us. We would we would do this until. Uh, we were no longer above ground and could because it's that important to us. And that is where there's no monetary value. Like there's no amount of money that would prevent us from doing this, but there is a monetary component when it, as it relates to compensating the surrogate and in return for that compensation, um, you know, there's a sort of an assumption of risk. And that's one of the main reasons that we didn't move forward with New York is there was really no structure. Um, there were no guidelines because it was technically outlawed. So if something did go wrong, it's kind of like driving without auto insurance. Mm. If you you know, you can do it, it's illegal. I'm sure a lot of people do. And it's fine until something goes wrong. That's right. So we we found a surrogate in a state that had proper procedures and guidelines. And, you know, if the surrogate 
is, um, you know, bedridden, for example, as a result of um, this massive baby <laughs> that's growing inside of her, hopefully it's not too big, but um, let's say she's bedridden, then it, that's on us. Um, you know, we've got to cover, there's expenses on a weekly basis. We compensate a cleaning person and people to help around the house. But once the child is born, because of the parentage process in the state of South Carolina, uh, Nick and I are the legal parents on the birth certificate from day one. So it would then roll up into our family coverage, which we have through Erie County, with um, Erie County BOCES, which is Nick's current employer. Nick's a teacher for special education. That's that's fantastic. So, wow, you just walked mm-hmm. us through that whole process. The financial side, the the good, the bad, the 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 uh, the challenges that you've had, and I know I know some of those all too well. Um, but uh, it sounds like it, seriously, it will be such a reward. I, and it's so cheesy to say, but being a parent, being a dad, uh, there's nothing like it. And it doesn't matter. Forget about the price tag, the cost. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if you spend two hundred thousand uh, for the whole process to have this miracle child, it, it doesn't stop there, right? It just begins. And uh, any parent, if Jay was on this call, if Jay was on this podcast, he would tell us uh, as being a proud dad of, of two and David of three, um, those costs don't go away. <laughs> they they don't. They just accumulate mm-hmm. and it's well worth it. It's so rewarding. But thank you for, for sharing sure. that that personal um, side of, of you and, and the business side. For those that don't know, Mark, uh, Mark Zimba, monarchwealthmanagement.com. Check out the site. Look into his details if you... Uh, our current client or will want to become one of his clients, certainly check out his info. Um, and you may see us coming to an employer near you if, if uh, Mark and I are working on that plan. Thanks again for being on the show today, Mark. You're welcome. All right. Take care, guys. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to Pennywise Financial brought to you by Monarch Wealth Management. Constantine and David really care about their clients. They want to make sure you're happy, so you'll continue to hire them. There's no commitments, and clients are free to leave whenever they want. Think about being able to pick up the phone and call someone for guidance and advice on almost anything, from buying a car, selling a home, buying vacation properties, or even selling a business. Reach out on the website at monarchwealthmanagement.com. There are two offices in Rochester and two offices in Buffalo. Reach out to us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Or call us toll-free at 800-480-1580. That's 800-480-1580. Until next time, this is Pennywise Financial, signing off. in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, and SIPC.